This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Grind, a cult coffee brand that since opening their first branch in Shoreditch back in 2011, have expanded across London, opening branches all over London that include espresso bars, cocktail bars, and even an international grade recording studio. And now you can enjoy Grind's excellent coffee at home, direct from their state-of-the-art coffee roastery in Bermondsey. Grind's coffee is sourced from across the world at better than fair trade prices, and the entire range, as well as all the packaging it comes in, is either compostable or recyclable, so they're also the more sustainable option as well. If you're looking for that cafe-quality caffeine fix from the comfort of your own home, head to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany now. And if you use the code ingoodcompany at checkout, you'll get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's Coffee Pod, Whole Bean or Ground Coffee subscriptions. Thank you very much to Grind. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otegi Wagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. To coincide with the publication of my new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out now, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years, and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence, my professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. You can buy it now in hardback, ebook and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com, and I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. On today's episode, I'm talking to the journalist and podcaster Anna Sale, who's the creator of Death, Sex and Money, WNYC's hugely popular podcast about the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. In June, Anna published a book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, in which she considers her own history of facing and sometimes avoiding difficult subjects, subjects such as race and wealth, inequality, grief, love, death, power, basically all the things that shape our daily lives, but which we often struggle to have conversations about. Anna has a lot to say about money, specifically why it's so hard to talk about it openly and why doing that makes us feel so exposed. And I found it really interesting to hear her theories on that. We also talked a lot about when money becomes a source of conflict in relationships and how to work around that. In her book, Anna talks about how different attitudes towards money in part contributed to the breakdown of her first marriage and what she's learned about navigating those differences in relationships moving forward, as well as how to deal with those disparities when they crop up in the context of your friendships. And of course, there's plenty of practical advice in this episode on how to have these tricky conversations about money and about other things with the people in your life. Hope you enjoy it. And here's Anna. I'm just going to jump straight in and ask you the big question that I myself have spent a lot of time trying to figure out, which is 
why is it so hard to talk about money? There's lots of reasons why it's hard. (laughs) I think because when we talk about money, we talk about a lot of things all at once. And we also often feel like we're sort of stepping out into outer space where there's not a lot of gravity because it's really hard to know if the person you're talking to is going to relate to your context around money Mm -hmm. or not. And I think that's for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of tricks we do to obscure what our money lives actually look like and our money histories have looked like. I write in the book about a statistic that I thought was really interesting about in the U.S., by the numbers, the middle class has shrunk over the course of my lifetime. I was born in 1980. Americans' inclination to self-identify as middle class has not changed so much. And I think that speaks to, at least in America, this idea of like, it's honorable to be part of the great big middle, even as the actual dollars and the economy and the way it works is shifting so we're more stratified and there's more income inequality, when it comes to our own personal money identities, we still want to think of ourselves as middle class and as fitting in with the big group in the middle. And then there's a whole other reason it's hard to talk about, which is even with people with whom you do talk about numbers, dollars and cents or pounds, <laughs> people you have to make money decisions with, you know, like in the context of a domestic relationship, for example, it can be really hard to even put words to the money cultural beliefs and values that you have been raised with in your family of origin because it's kind of not communicated with words, but it's communicated around these really deep issues around things like survival and safety and morality. And so I think what I have noticed in my own marriage is that like I have been forced to put words to the really deep beliefs I have around money, which has then helped me kind of look at them and say, huh, do I still want to like adhere to this particular belief or do I want to have it evolve? Mm. I want to pick up on something you just said there about money being tied in with morality, because that's something that I think about a lot. I think, you know, even for the most sort of socially progressive and and liberal people, I do think culturally, and certainly within Western society, we have a tendency to venerate the rich and to demonize the poor as well. And your financial situations are treated as a kind of indicator of, of your moral worth and your sort of value. And I'd love to hear what you think about that. I mean, I think it We all know when we look up close at it that that is bonkers. Mm. The idea that if you are good, you will be rich. And if you are poor, it must mean you are bad. That is so much derived from the idea of do you work hard? And if you work hard, you will flourish economically. And we know that's not true. (laughs) We know that's at least not the whole truth. And one thing I really wanted to underscore when it comes to talking about money in my book is that, like, I think that we get caught in these binaries that, like, you either need to express that what we have individually is the result of how hard we've worked and the choices we've made and the risks we've taken and our boldness, or you 
On the other side, want to say, where our politics urges us to say, what each of us individually has is the consequence of forces that most of us have nothing to do with, which is, you know, what we inherit, whether it's debt or generational wealth, the moment in time that we are born in and enter the workforce, and the way political systems have been set up to benefit some and hurt others. And what I really think is useful is to reject that binary And for myself, for example, to say the money I currently have in my bank account and the lifestyle I am able to pay for is the result of work I've done, choices I've made, things I've invested time in too, but it is also so much the result of what my grandparents and great-grandparents did and the moment in time I was born in the United States and what the economy was doing and the moment in time that I graduated from college and what my parents did for work. So to really just sit with this idea of like all of our financial lives and the money we have are the result of things that we have done and things that have happened to us that we had no control over. And the reason I think that's useful is because it makes you sit in that place of if things are not going well, to not just immediately go to that place of, oh my God, like shame and alienation and isolation and feeling like you didn't figure out something that everybody else has. And it also allows you to because there are larger systems that we're a part of. And it also allows you to be proud of the things that you have done, the choices you did make, the risks you did take that paid off. Mm. I mean, something that I find very much here in in Britain, especially with such a class-obsessed society, but I'm I'm sure it's similar in the US, but... We just don't say the word. You say it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But people who have whatever privileges or, or structural advantages, whether that's racial or generational wealth or whether they've been privately educated, which is a real flashpoint that reoccurs, I think, within sort of British society a lot, is they're often really reluctant to talk about that and how those factors might have played into their financial position. And I'm curious as to what you think the reason for that is. Well, I think it's because, like all of us, there is... I think a cultural belief, I believe in the UK, you're more familiar, so tell me if I'm wrong. There's a cultural belief that it's more honorable to have made the money yourself, to have gained the privilege by your own efforts. So no one wants to talk about, oh, gosh, yeah, the reason I have this house and send my kids to this private school is because my grandmother you know, willed me all this money that her relatives before her willed her. No one wants to say that out loud because it makes you look like you're some, it's kind of infantilizing, you know, like this money is coming from other adults who lived before me. But in fact, like (laughs) what's so strange to me about that is, yes, we don't want to say that out loud, but, you know, the people who can send their kids to expensive private schools and probably be a part of kind of exclusive social circles, you know, they're okay celebrating with the trappings of that generational wealth and Mm -hmm. indicating they have that generational wealth through other means, Mm -hmm. but just, they just don't use words. Totally, totally, totally. And the thing that I find really galling about that, and it's something that I talk about in my own book, is that people being secretive about inherited money or hidden financial advantages can be really psychologically fraught for the people around them Mm -hmm. who don't have those same circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if your best friend, I think about when I was living in New York City as a person in my late 20s and working in media, and there's this interesting thing that happens, at least in my generation around sort of early 30s, where 
all of a sudden people's lives start to look different and there's this differentiation. And even among people that I had worked in, you know, public media alongside, all of a sudden I looked around, I'm like, oh, wow, they have a really fancy brownstone in Brooklyn. Like, where'd that come from? (laughs) Like, oh, is it, is it, you know, and and that could have been generational wealth or spouse money or, you know, who knows. But that idea of like, what did they figure out that I didn't can be so like shaming. And I do think it's, you know, it can be awkward, but like, for example, like, if I'm talking to somebody about student loan debt, I find it useful to occasionally say like, oh, you know what? My dad was a doctor and my parents paid for my college. So I actually have not had student debt. Let me just like indicate that. Yeah. And I think what that does is it certainly feels a little bit weird to volunteer that, but it enables me to make also make myself realize, oh, because I didn't have student debt, that's why I was able to save money in my 20s and 30s and have a down payment for a house. If I had to pay that same amount of money for student debt, which many, 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 many of my peers have had to do, I would be in a totally different situation. So it also just helps to just understand in a more personal way through those personal conversations with friends, like how the economy is working in this present moment and not working. Yeah, totally. I mean, something you talk about in your book is the importance of honest money conversations in revealing many of the structural inequalities that exist. Do you honestly think that mere conversation can change that? Because these are powerful historic forces we're talking about, you know, capitalism, racism, sexism, like all the isms, Mm -hmm. basically. And something that I think about is the fact that you and I having this conversation, like, what is that doing to actually redress some of those imbalances? Yeah. I mean, I think what you say, can mere conversation fix these things? No. But I do think conversation still has to happen. And where I do think it can be transformative to have conversations and interpersonal relationships about these enormous forces, where it can really matter, is I think what I was just alluding to, that idea that with people in your life, when you're acknowledging how these larger forces are affecting each of you individually, and you're talking about it, and you're sharing about it, it makes all those forces more visible, And so, no, I don't think having the forces become visible all of a sudden will reform them. But I do think it's a step further than pretending that they're not operating on all of us. Totally, totally. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you've been hosting your podcast, Death, Sex and Money, for years now and have interviewed probably hundreds of people. And you've spoken to a lot of them about money. I'd love to know in your experience what you found in terms of what have been the costs for people who haven't spoken honestly and openly about money with the people in their lives? I think they show up in a lot of ways. The chief one that I find that I think about when you ask that is about kind of the weight of shame around Mm. debt in particular, which can be invisible. So people feel like they can hide it and then they feel like they're an imposter. And often, you know, the way people experience debt is they get their monthly statement in the mail or they get that email. And then if they don't pay it, they get the calls and they get, you know, tracked down. And it's a very intense, (laughs) impersonal interaction. And if there's no one else in your life that you feel comfortable just acknowledging that it's there, that it's a part of your life, it can be really heavy. And what can happen when you just open up the conversation about debt to like say, 
Here are some macro statistics about the debt load that most Americans, for example, are carrying around with them. Like, what is the impact of that? It just helps, like, just by creating that conversation of, like, there's no shame in just having debt. Debt is a part of how we move through the economy. And so let's talk about how it's affecting your life. Let's talk about how you're managing your debt. Let's compare notes and just give a little bit more room and space so it's not something you individually feel like you're holding on your own. Like I have heard that in people's voices as I interview them. It starts with a sort of tightness and whisper. I interviewed one guy I can remember like in the parking lot of his company office. He was an engineer and he felt so hoodwinked by the student debt system and it had made him question he was an immigrant to the U.S. and he really believed he had done everything that he was told that he ought to do and he felt totally overwhelmed by the student debt that he had accrued and hit it. And then after we had that conversation, it was really wonderful to hear from him about like what just acknowledging it's like when you finally tell a secret, it allows you to look at it a slightly more clearly. And in his case, he like refinanced his debt. He was dealing with it in a different way, felt just a little bit more in control of it than that totally tight, fearful place of denial where he started. Totally. I mean, as someone who spent a lot of I mean, I've never been in debt unless you count my student loan but I mean in the UK it's a very very different entity from what you guys have to deal with in the US which frankly terrifies me whenever I hear discussions about it like here in the UK I mean the student loan company might not agree but like I don't think about my student loan debt it's just not the same thing the interest rates aren't as high it's way more standardized it's kind of a very manageable amount deducted from your paycheck or if you're self-employed you pay like a small amount at the end of each year and it's you know it's very means tested as well so I think now currently you have to be earning £25,000 in the UK in order for your student loan repayments to kick in Hmm. so it's you know that's different so (laughs) radically yeah very radically different from what you guys have to deal with but I do know that as someone who spent a lot of my 20s suffering from a lot of anxiety about money for various reasons the kind of emotional way of starting to open up about it and talk about it more largely in part actually because you know I started writing a book about it you forced yourself with homework yeah honestly (laughs) I I hadn't seen it coming because in order to tell other people my own money story I first had to figure it out for myself it just made me feel so much more comfortable and also confessing to the more negative things because Mm -hmm. I think people are quite happy to talk about when they've been saving and doing stuff well Mm -hmm. but like just openly saying like oh yeah I'm jealous that you know my friend's parents bought her a flat Mm-hmm. which I felt so ashamed about for many years. And yeah, I don't know, it's just to anyone listening, I do just want to impress on them. You know, when I was asking you, what's the real benefits of just talking? Like, it's a bit of a devil's advocate question because for me, it has been life-changing. But I want to move on slightly and talk a little bit about financial socialization and how our attitudes to money are formed. In mm-hmm. your book, and, and also in my book, we both reference the financial psychologist Brad Kluntz, uh-huh. who has identified four key money scripts that most people tend to adhere to. So there's money worship, where you sort of believe that money, money is the key to happiness. Money avoidance, where you think it's bad and corrupting and think sort of people are bad. Money status, where, you know, your sense of self-worth and value is really kind of tied in with money and you think that kind of ranks our value and deservedness and money vigilance which you identify as your own particular persuasion big time is definitely mine as well (laughs) 
where money makes you nervous and anxious. And as a result, you're really careful with it and monitor it constantly, which honestly, when I first discovered this research like years ago, it was like a come to Jesus moment. Because prior to that, I had really felt like my approach to money was very irrational and almost kind of perverse, if that makes Mm. sense. Like it was very self-flagellating. But being careful with money sounds like a good thing. How could that possibly be a bad thing? Yeah. When I first saw those scripts and I realized I was money vigilance, I had a gross sort of pride. Did you? (laughs) Yeah. But I've come to like really see the downsides of that. And because for me, how money vigilance expresses itself is this idea that if I watch closely enough and kind of hold tight enough with my white knuckles, like squeeze Mm. my control over my money, I will be safe. And there are a lot of downsides to that. First of which is that there's no room for flow and acceptance of what I myself cannot anticipate or, you know, do not control. And that for me has shown up not just in like not seeing hard things coming down the pike, but I have a real failure to imagine that things ever will turn out well and what that could look like. (laughs) You you are preaching to the choir. When I first thought I was like, oh, that's the responsible one. So that's good. Well, it is because it's the only money script of those four that is generally associated with good financial behavior. And so I kind of saw that as well. And I was like, oh, it means you save quite hard, which is not a bad thing. No, there's definitely upsides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the thing that I spotted immediately when I found out about it is that it was very, very emotionally unhealthy. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Well, I didn't have the benefit of that self-awareness. I had to have that pointed out to me by partners in arguments (laughs) about money (laughs) and continue to in my marriage. Like I have had to be pushed to open up and share control. I'm now 40 and I I really don't think that I created just sort of like an awareness that I do need to change until very recently in the last few years. And an awareness that when you try to have such tight control and perseverate and worry about money, it makes things less fun. Like there's a downside to it because I didn't really believe there was a downside. I was like, oh, you're just being irresponsible. <laughs> yeah. you know? Oh my God. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to my twin. <laughs> it's so weird. I was like, the harder you save, the better. I was like, saving should hurt. Otherwise you're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I put myself through a lot of misery, basically, in my 20s with that attitude. I'm curious, though. I I definitely know what it was for me, I think, that resulted in that attitude and sort of various childhood experiences. I didn't have a lot of money growing up and, and there were various situations. But I'd love to know if you're happy to share what experiences in your life made you a money vigilant, do you think? You know, I've thought about this a lot because in some ways it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like I grew up never having to worry about money. As I said, Mm -hmm. my dad was a doctor. My mom was a physical therapist. There was a real sort of sense of like, you don't buy nice things. And if you do, you buy them on sale. So like I did grow up with a real sense of like value and I would say cheap. You know, like, we, we did thrifty. not splurge in that's my family. That's the word I prefer, yeah. thrifty. Uh, thrifty. Um, and I still very much, that's a part of me. But, you know, I've thought, 
there's a lot of ways to sort of think about the story. My mom grew up on a farm. My grandpa was a farmer and kept his books with a ruler and pencil and was someone who I think of farming as this like ultimate, you do whatever you can. And then also you just are always faced with the limits of your control when it comes to things like how much rain is there going to be? And is there going to be a hurricane? And did you just lose that crop? So a real sense of like prudence because you had to always be preparing for the bottom to fall out, basically. Mm. So maybe it, I sort of inherited that kind of sensibility. It wasn't spoken, though. And I don't really think that's 100% fair because I'm one of five daughters and I am the most uh, vigilant of us. I'm one of three daughters and I, especially my older sister, she's like, I don't identify with this. <laughs> it's interesting. Are you middle? No, I'm the youngest. Interesting. I wrote an article a while back about, you know, my kind of financial anxiety. And she was like, yeah, I feel like it affected you more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because she just, you know, she's sensible and and she's done, you know, very well for herself. But my real self-flagellating and panic about money isn't something she identifies with. And we have the same upbringing. We have the same parents. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I think if I were to think about what about me in particular and not from my family is I think it's really related to my own sense of like, I'm a middle child and I am like a classic middle child in that I have always been very achievement oriented. It's important to me to be independent. It's like, I want to be standing solidly on my own two feet and not need help from anyone. And that's part of my personality. And I think that is definitely expressed by the way I am with money. It's like, oh, like the idea of having to ask for help or admitting a mistake around money is really scary for me. It would be fine, but I can't allow myself to like think about needing that. Mm, I'm very controlling, I think, in most aspects of my life, especially where work is concerned. I'm sure if anyone I work with, my editor is <laughs> listening to this, she'll be like, <coughs> she'll be. <laughs> I've just joked because it's, it's like an understatement. <laughs> But I think that also really applies to money. Like I try to control and account for everything. And the reality is, you know, so many situations in my life, like you can't control for it. Like a couple of months ago, I had a gas leak and, you know, I had to pay a repair bill. And actually, I'm so much better with my relationship with money now. Actually, I sailed through that. And I was like, it's fine. This is what happens. You can't live with a gas leak. It's cool. But um, <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I love you to say, like, I couldn't just breathe gas, so I need to spend this money. (laughs) Literally. The old me would have been like, just open the windows. (laughs) But I think before, years ago, that kind of unexpected scenario would have sent me absolutely spinning. Mm -hmm. Like, it would have been a disaster. Whether or not I was able to afford it, like, whether I was able to afford it, it would just have absolutely like (laughs) crushed my brain. So yeah, I think that's definitely kind of my character trait. Did you know that around 29,000 plastic or aluminium Nespresso pods are sent to landfill every minute? But with Grind's compostable Nespresso pods, you don't have to worry about what your caffeine habit might be doing to the environment. Their pods are made entirely from bioplastic and when composted, they'll break down in a matter of weeks. To enjoy the taste of cafe quality coffee in the comfort of your own home, head to www.grind.co.uk forward slash in good company now and use the code in good company at checkout. 
to get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's Coffee Pod, Whole Bean or Ground Coffee subscriptions. And now, back to the show. I want to talk about relationships Mm -hmm. because you talk a lot in your book about the way money can be a source of conflict in romantic relationships and in particular how differences in financial attitudes was a contributing factor to the breakdown of your first marriage. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to know when people are getting together with someone or say getting more serious, you know, you're moving in together, getting married, what are some of the conversations they need to be having to avoid money flare-ups further down the line? How I think about it is it's just there's two levels. There's many levels, but there's two primary levels. And one is like, can you trust each other to look at your money pictures together? That is one way in. And I did that in my first marriage. You know, we talked about, you know, our budget together and we looked at numbers. And and so I thought that we had sort of done that work. And I think where we would have benefited from more conversation early on is just really talking together about like what we think money is for Mm -hmm. at the most basic level. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about it, when you're forming a romantic relationship that you think is going to become a partnership that then is going to become a household and a way you spend your life, you want to investigate together what makes you feel safe, what makes you feel exhilarated, what's your comfort with risk, what is life about, like at the most basic level. Because I think in my first marriage, where we came to was we got to a point, I was 30 and he was a couple years older than me and he had had this pretty reliable work life where he was a civil rights lawyer. He was the one who we always knew he would be the sort of steady earner and I was kind of the creative person in the relationship working in radio. And then that flipped over because I always knew he wanted to make movies, but he came to a point where he was like, I need to not be an attorney anymore and I want to go to film school. And that was a huge identity transformation for him and also for the dynamics in our relationship and how money worked. It was really hard. It was hard for me as someone who is a real sort of like can be quite risk averse to my own detriment. It was one of those decisions where when your partner says to you, this is what I want to do in my life and this is my passion, I need to go to film school. I knew that I needed to say, okay, like I support Mm -hmm. you. But as I said that, I realized like I didn't know where to go with all the feelings that it brought up for me about what that was going to mean for us. What were those feelings? Oh, just like, like, like feelings of like, I can't picture what our life is going to be now. I can't picture what we're building towards. For me, I knew that I wanted to be a parent. So I was just turning 30 thinking about like, what is the paradigm here now? Like Mm -hmm. for how we create stability and I don't even know, like, what does a filmmaker's life look like? What are the different variations of that? And, you know, I think if this were happening to me now, like, I would basically create a syllabus for myself and I would make myself, like, go out and interview people who had gone to film school and be like, what is your life like? How does it work? What is your life like? And how does it work? You know, just to, like, broaden my sense of possibilities. But I didn't do that. Instead, I sort of was like, okay. And it ended up first showing up in bickering and in arguments that we were having about what should happen in the summer and what kind of summer job he should get between semesters at film school. But really what it was about was 
where are we going together? And do we want to be going to the same place? And ultimately, we didn't. He wanted a very different sort of life than I did. And that was sort of revealed first through arguments and bickering around money and then through couples counseling and talking and then sort of like looking really directly at the fact that we wanted our lives to unfold in a really different way from each other, which meant that it didn't make sense for us to be married anymore. You asked about what should we have talked about at the beginning of the relationship. I, you like, there's some ways I don't think when I was falling in love with him when I was 22, there's some ways you can't like have the conversations that are going to anticipate those tensions. That's just an age thing. I was going to ask, and again, I hope this isn't too personal, but I know that you've since remarried, you have a new partner. And I imagine meeting someone in your 30s, you do end up having those sorts of conversations in a way that you just wouldn't when you're 22. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. (laughs) I was like such a handful when I was first meeting my husband, Arthur, because I was freshly having filed for divorce. So I was like, let me tell you what I've just been through. And and so it was like all on the table. And, you know, when I was Mm. 22, I was basically, I mean, this was a shock for me to realize when I was getting divorced, but to realize I had gone from living in my house with my parents to going to college and living with college students and roommates to living with my boyfriend after college, and then we went on to get married. So I had never lived by myself. I'd never been on my own. At 22, this just the idea of, well, how is the world going to take care of me? And then the expectation that a partner is going to fill in some of the gaps Mm. that your parents did, you know, like lots of growing up had to happen. I want to stay on topic with this and ask if you have any ideas. So I'm now kind of treating you as the kind of relationship and money expert. But if you have any ideas, again, perhaps based on what you've learned from your years of interviewing people about this. But how should couples split money in relationships where one partner is making a lot more than the other or perhaps has an inheritance, which I think is quite an interesting thing as well, because that's not money that you've necessarily earned. It's money that been given. What have you found works and doesn't work? What works for me, and I think it just really depends on what works for you. I I think there's lots of different models, but what I have found works for me is I like sharing money in Mm -hmm. my marriage. So I like not having to be like, oh, let's split the rent and have different checkbooks and the whole thing. Like that just creates too much homework. Mm -hmm. So I like having a (laughs) pot of money that is our money that we really think of our money. But as we were initially setting that up, we just looked at like, okay, how much do you earn? How much do I earn? At the time, my husband was just out of grad school and was a postdoc. We weren't yet married. As we were living together, he was a postdoc. And I was a reporter and journalist in New York City. So I was earning more than him. And so I was like, okay, based on this, here's the ratio for our joint checking account. And we're going to pay for all of our joint expenses out of this together. According to your different earnings. So yes. Slight differential. Okay. Got exactly. On. Exactly. That was how we set it up for how we would run our household. And then it kind of evolved over time. I think once we got married and basically like really crassly, at least under the law in New York State where we were living at the time, like whatever money we had and had earned were earning while we were together was shared money under the law. So mm. I was just like, it's our money now. <laughs> so like I think mm. we still have like our own individual checking accounts, but it's from a really long time ago and we don't really use them. Mm. But things like other money that comes in that's outside of our regular 
earnings, you know, like when I wrote the book or money he got from his grandmother, like that kind of extra money, we sort of like budget for in a separate way. And that becomes like the spreadsheet for special projects. Got it. Does that make sense? So it's like, so we have a sort of way of, you know, this is how our everyday life is going to work. When you think about what the money that we we have that we're saving, what it's for, that's like Mm. a separate spreadsheet. (laughs) It was really helpful to build those spreadsheets with my husband, Arthur, because to really buy in together to what the vision is was important. And it was hard for me. Right after we got married, we moved to California, which is a really, really, really expensive place to live. And we were having our first baby and having a baby is a really, really expensive thing um, (laughs) when you have to pay for childcare. And so I was having like total oh my God, what is this? Money meltdown. Yes, like, oh my God. The thing that doing a spreadsheet helps me with is it helps also to introduce the variable of time. And what I mean by that is I so quickly go to like, am I in a safe place or an unsafe place? And it's so much about how I feel in a particular moment. But when I lay it out and I can introduce time, I can remind myself like, oh, we only have to pay for childcare until this child is, she's going to go to preschool and that will be less expensive and then she'll go to public school and that will be less expensive. So there's these Mm -hmm. like ways in which I can tamp down my anxiety by recognizing that there are some phases of financial lives, of our financial lives that are not permanent, that are very seasonal and that come and go. Yeah, definitely. It's like consumption smoothing. Like I remember Oh, I like that term. Yeah, no, no, it's walls, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's my A-level economics coming out there. Um, (laughs) That's like the one thing I remembered. I managed to buy a flat at the end of last year. And obviously the first year, and I think the first couple of years, are going to continue to be just pretty expensive, especially as it needs work. And I had this moment of being like, wow, this is really expensive. And then I was like, I think it was a friend actually said to me, he was like, yeah, but, you know, the first year is going to be expensive because Mm -hmm. you're finding all these things that need to be fixed and you're doing all the stuff, you're buying all the furniture. It's not going to be like that the rest of the time. Like you're not going to need to buy a whole new set of furniture each year. You're not (laughs) going to need to do a renovation each year. You know, so like that really helped me think, okay, chill out about the fact that you're not saving anything now and that you're just seemingly writing checks for various amounts because this is not a once in a lifetime thing, but this is something that isn't going to happen regularly essentially. So yeah, I think that's really great advice. I want to talk about other types of relationships, specifically friendships, because for most people, their 20s and their 30s are where the financial differences, you know, among their friendship groups really start to emerge. So people go into different jobs. You mentioned people start upgrading their lifestyles. They start buying homes. They inherit money. How should we approach friendships where people have more or less money than you? Because it's such an awkward thing to do. And I think in particular for me, just speaking personally, I feel like I've kind of learned to deal with this now, but how to deal with the resentment that might come with having a friend who has a lot more money than you and there's a vast gulf in your lives, especially if your friendship didn't start out that way. Yeah. I think the thing that I always circle back to, like I wish I could tell you, here's the way to approach these conversations so those tensions will go away. The fact is I don't have that advice because I think the reason we don't talk about money is because we want to pretend those differences don't exist. My philosophy is if you can get comfortable with the idea that those differences exist and there's nothing you can say that's going to change the material fact of your life and your friend's life in a conversation, there's nothing you can say that's going to 
make one of you more comfortable and one of you have less if you have way more than you need. But the thing that I have tried to do in my own relationships, whether it's with someone who has a lot more or someone who doesn't have as much comfort as I have, I just try to like open up a little door to those dynamics in the relationship. And, you know, I think of it like I have one friend who I really, really, really love, and we've become parents at the same time. And man, if your 20s and 30s is a time of financial differentiation, like becoming parents and what that does for your budgets, like that's another real flashpoint. I just try to think of it like trying to get to a place of curiosity with each other about how your lives are working. And so, I wrote a book, and so I had got a book advance money at a time when, like, that was really useful to have extra money as a new parent. Like, she did not write a book, so she didn't have this, like, extra money that just showed up in her budget. What she does have that I don't have is family that's close by. And so she has this kind of cool mm. patchwork of care that is not paid for with money. Like, I have to just, like, write those checks to get the cash to pay very expert caregivers that I'm so glad are a part of our life. But it's a financial mm. relationship. She has different arrangements. A few times I've gotten invited to radio conferences that are in cool, fun places to visit. And I've just been like, hey, can you come share my hotel room? I think I have miles. And so a few times we've traveled internationally together. And like that's been super cool to get to do that together. But it's taken me getting over the weirdness of being like, oh, is she going to feel like I'm, I don't know, is that going to be weird for her or like make her feel, I don't know, weird that I'm offering this thing to her? But, but Have I, you been friends a long time? We've been friends not since childhood, but since our early career. And we started out yeah. kind of a similar place in a newsroom. Mm -hmm. So there's been a sort of like change in how our lives look. Our lives look pretty different now. And I'm sure there's like, little flashpoints of resentment that come up, particularly for her. You know, I'm the one who has more in this friendship. But I just try to, like, acknowledge. If I'm feeling weird, I'll just say, like, could this be cool? Like, how would we work this? Like, I think we can make this, you know, I just try to talk yeah. about it. And I've always thought, I think, having myself had those feelings of resentment or jealousy or whatever, I actually don't think, I mean, these are human emotions, and I don't judge that how can I because that has very often been me and, and sometimes still is but I think it's about what you do with those emotions and how you act on them and whether you externalize them to your friend in a way that's kind of negative sometimes you see things on Twitter and they're like oh you shouldn't be jealous of your friends you should always be happy for your friends and I was like yeah in an ideal world but that's just not how human emotion works so let's kind of be grown-ups about this and accept that sometimes there are going to be these negative emotions and it's what you do with them that is yeah. really kind of the test. Yeah. I mean, if we could all live with what how Twitter tells us to live, like. Oh <laughs> I don't know why I've was. I spent way, way too much time in that cesspit. Like it keeps dragging me back in. But I want to change topics slightly because in your book, and I love this, actually, I really, really love this. You revealed that you're not necessarily pro radical honesty when it comes to money and that that's not necessarily your message which I love because I think as someone who writes about this topic a lot and talks about the importance of talking openly about money that is a misreading that sometimes mm -hmm. happens to me as well and so you you write and I quote while some argue for greater transparency all around I'm personally not comfortable shouting my salary from the rooftops because to me that strips the numbers of their context which is important I will readily share the story of my earnings history with a friend or close colleague over a drink, 
the difference there is that I'm having this conversation within a relationship where we're able to talk about the stories that accompany the numbers. I just kind of want everyone who's listening to just kind of sit with that for a minute, because again, I am pro financial transparency. I think you made a really good point there. How can people who want to talk openly about money and recognize the benefits of doing so also do so in a way that feels controlled and that they feel comfortable with? Like what sort of boundaries are important to put in place? Well, you know what really helped me when I was writing that section? Because I actually talked to my book editor about it because I was like, are people going to think I'm a fraud (laughs) if Mm. I say this, if I'm drawing this Mm. line for me? Why do I have that line? And what is that about? Is that somehow not in line with sort of the greater political movement of what could be established by more people being willing to shout their salaries from the rooftop. To me, it's about trade-offs and boundaries, as you say. And my book editor actually really helpfully said, like, well, it's kind of similar to what you write about in the sex chapter. Like, you're finding your personal comfort with what feels private and what feels is useful to share and be open about. And that's kind of where I came down around how I feel about money. And as you read there, like, to me, it is really important to say, you know, when I'm having a drink with a close colleague and can say, oh, I got this raise at this point and here's what was going on and I had this job offer and this is the way I had this conversation with this boss. It's also much more honest. You know, if I were a journalist who was 10 or 15 years coming up behind me and I saw Anna Sale tweet out her salary, I would be like, fuck, how, how, excuse me, can I say that? <laughs> um, you yeah, like, absolutely can. I'd be like, shoot, <laughs> like how, how did that happen? And like, and I think that the suggestion that if you just march in with a sense of empowerment and say, I ought to be earning X because I know this other person is earning X, is really not actually how money works in markets. So much of how things come together in our earnings are about the moment in time and in the industry where we're working, what else is going on at the company, Like it's about leverage and who has leverage when and and what the relationships are. And so that's, I think, something that is important to talk about when you talk about dollars and cents. You know, at the same time, I do think it's really important then. And I have this as my own sort of personal challenge, like if I'm going to have a sort of more limited number of people where I'm really transparent and frank about money and earnings, I need to take seriously the responsibility of paying attention to who I'm mentoring and making sure it's not just people who I personally relate to and who look like me, because I think there is a really important political function of having conversations about money. So you can recognize like, oh, who is historically earning less and why? And let's reveal that. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I thought it was just a really important bit of nuance because I'm a a friend of mine like a couple of years ago now. I think she'd written a book about money and and business. And in the course of promoting it, she was being pressured by an editor to reveal how much she earned. And she texted me and she's like, what do you think? And I was like, tell them to fuck off, first of all. Like, that's (laughs) not their business. They're welcome to say it in an editor's note at the top of the piece how much they're earning. (laughs) I was like, babe, I think they're just being nosy. Like, But also... I did just feel like they were just being nosy and kind of wanted to be a bit sensationalist and kind of have this strap line in the headline because I was like, it's so contextless. Your career is very unique. It's, you know, largely based on like who you are, if that makes sense, which I think in media is often the case. Like, you know, we might all have these various skills, but then there becomes an element of where it's like profile and achievements. And I was like, there is no other equivalent for you. So 
I almost don't know what you sharing this is going to do for other people. It was just such a strange situation, but I kind of was kind of prepping myself for that happening with, you know, talking about my book. Obviously, I probably won't be telling anyone to fuck off, but who knows, I might. But it's it's just like the context of that figure. Like there was this thing last summer after George Floyd was killed and it was publishing paid me, a hashtag. I don't know whether it took off in the US, but mm-hmm. it definitely took yeah, off in sad. the UK. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people who were sharing, and at one point I went to go and share my advances and then I was like, hang on a second. Because obviously this is about racial disparities. And I noticed a lot of the people who were sharing their advances were black authors and people of colour. And a lot of very prominent white authors were being quiet. And I was like, this is not helpful to me. I already know that black authors are being underpaid. I want to finish with, I mean, you've provided so much practical advice, but I want to finish with the real kind of crux of your book, which is how to have these difficult conversations. I'd love to hear any advice you have on how to initiate and how to have a conversation about money that we know will be difficult or awkward, whether that's with your boyfriend or whether that's with your boss at work. Where should we start? We get in hard conversations in two ways. We either start them or they are brought up to us. And, and so, <laughs> or we're dragged into them. <laughs> yes, or surprised by them. Ah, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> I'm going to start with the first where you were the initiator because I think that's where you can do the sort of pre-work. And it starts with, your own preparation internally of like, what is this feeling I'm having that's making me feel like I need something is unresolved? You know, it starts in your gut as a feeling that doesn't have words. And then the work is like, how do I put words to this? Like, what would be helpful? Why do I want to have this conversation? And maybe it's something like, you know, it might just be, ugh, I'm just feeling really stressed and strained about how much money we're spending right now. And I just want to express that, you know, I'm trying to like, blah, blah, blah. Like, so it's not like, let's fix a problem or come to a solution together. It could just be, I need you to know this. But if it is a feeling of, I feel this conflict and I want to bring it to you, think about what it is that you want to say, what is the feeling, and then think about how can I say this to this person that is appropriate for the relationship that we have? And what I mean by that is the way you talk about money with a romantic partner is going to be different than the way you talk about money with a boss, you know, like you're managing different relationship dynamics there. And, you know, with a romantic partner, for example, if you have to make a joint money decision and you know each other really well and you can be really concrete about numbers and you care about each other's emotional well-being and you feel comfortable exposing where you feel sort of soft and tender, it could just be saying, like, can we talk about something important, I've been noticing something and I want to talk to you about it. So what that sentence does is it signals to your conversation partner, I want to go into a different mode of talking than just catching up on logistics or pitter-patter small talk and say, let's talk about something that's a little bit potentially just takes more deliberate listening. And then say, this is this thing I've been thinking about. What do you think about this? And then really pay attention to what your conversation partner says back to you and pay attention to the pacing of the conversation. You know, something I notice a lot, if I'm moving out of my listening self and into a sort of reacting self and a defensive self, everything gets faster and I get that hot feeling of having emotional reactions. And that's not the best place to have conversations 
about money from, about any hard thing from, because you're sort of like, that's a self-protection mode. That's not a listening and exchanging mode. Or processing even. Yeah, yeah. So it can be about sort of like, I really think for me, it's helpful to just think about pacing, because if I want to just say something in response, if I just pause and then I say something like, huh, I'm noticing this is making me feel really defensive. Instead of saying the defensive thing, make it a conversation about what's happening between you two. That helps you remember that you are two people who care about each other and want to understand each other's experience. It's different in a conversation with a boss because the power dynamic is different, of course. And one thing I always advise to people if you're talking about money with a boss, it's to make sure you've thought through before you start the conversation, like, is there a way I can propose this that is going to solve a problem that they have? Thinking about where the company is, if they're trying to think about, you know, if you're aware of some other thing. So it's not just you going hat in hand and saying, I think I deserve X more dollars a year, or I think I was underpaid for this project and I'm not, you know, like that kind of thing. But instead say like, I've been thinking about this thing and I noticed that this is a part of what you're saying is the strategic plan. Like, what if we do it this way? I think I could do it for a pretty reasonable budget and kind of come with more information so you're solving a problem for them. I think people don't do that enough with bosses because it's so easy, as I have done in my life, to think about a boss as a sort of parental figure who's either giving you what you need or withholding what you need. <laughs> so you come from a place of sort of indignation, but really like <laughs> we're all working together and they have problems they need to solve. So if you can help them and align your interest, you're putting yourself in a better position to get more money. That's really interesting. I've always kind of thought of the trying to kind of see things from your boss's perspective, not necessarily about money, but just in other ways. Like I, I used to work in advertising and so I learned some useful things there. One of the things that I learned as it relates to client management or people management is they've got their own shit going on too. Mm -hmm. And so very often, you know, you're trying to get work over the line with a client and their concern isn't whether the work is good or not. Their concern is that they're going for a promotion or the big boss at the company has mandated X, Y, Z and, and actually having those conversations with them, which is essentially was like, how can I help you progress in your job? would often feed back into us being able to work because it shouldn't be, but the ad agency client relationship can be quite combative. Uh-huh. And so kind of being like, help me help you sort of thing was always a really, really good strategy that I've taken with me since even as I'm self-employed. It's just like bearing in mind that people have their own stuff going on. So I think that applies. I've never applied it to money before, but I think that's a really great bit of advice. Yeah, I think that might be all we have time for today. This has been such an insightful conversation. I know I'm going to be reflecting on it for a while to come. So thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. Oh, I'm so glad I did. It's really fun talking to you. And I have not read your book and I want to read your book. I, I feel will send like... you a copy. <laughs> yes. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my book, We Need to Talk About Money which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about money and is available now in hardback, ebook and audio with signed copies available from waterstones.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegauagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. 
See you next week. reminder that you can get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's at-home coffee pod, whole or ground coffee subscriptions by heading to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany and using the code ingoodcompany at checkout. Then espresso compatible coffee pods are fully compostable, making them the more sustainable option for coffee lovers everywhere.